Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. making our free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, my name's Mara. This episode of the Radioactive Show was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri and Ghana land for 3CR Melbourne. On today's show, we speak to Dr Gillian Marsh, Adnamatna woman and lecturer in Aboriginal Studies at La Trobe University. Gillian has recently written an article with Dr Jim Green that explores some of the tensions between traditional owners, industry and government in the context of the nuclear industry. We'll hear about some of the legislative and systemic issues that make it difficult to protect country and difficult to say no. Hi Gillian, thanks for joining us on the Radioactive Show. Hi, how are you, Mara? Good, thank Thanks you. for the invitation. Oh, it's great to have you. So today we're going to be talking about the paper you wrote with Dr Jim Green about the First Nations rights and colonising practices by the nuclear industry, an Australian battleground for environmental justice, which has been published in the Extractive Industries and Society Journal. Your paper explores the tensions between First Nations industry and government in the context of uranium mining and nuclear waste management in Australia. Can you give some examples of those tensions and associated challenges? Yes. Firstly, I think one of the tensions and challenges, um, because they they kind of go hand in hand, um, one of those areas is around understanding the regulatory frameworks that government use, and also the other is understanding new legislation that impacts on us as a community, such as native title, Mm. and how that's meant to work in tandem with or as a separate process to um, Aboriginal heritage legislation. And then for us as a community, underpinning all of that is how, um, despite having legislation in place, um, none of these frameworks really represent what we want as a community and what our values are and what our ideology around how the country should be used um, from a traditional owner perspective. So um, even though we have some, some legislation that we can draw on, it's still limited in that um, these pieces of legislation are developed by government, by industry, based on Western science and Western ideology of um, what world's best practice is around land use. And they don't conform to what um, Indigenous peoples' own values are around um, how we value the land and what it means to us and how it should be cared for in the future. Um, so it's really difficult to... Um, to engage in a process that's um, that's framed um, in a colonial way and um, that already starts to exclude us. But the other thing that excludes us um, and creates challenges um, for a um, a proper engagement process is that um, we have very limited um, resources and capacity um, because um, we're operating from a community base, Mm. whereas government and industry both have a commercial and an economic platform to, um, to begin their processes and so they're well equipped to, um, to, to work through and manage and essentially own the process because they have the resources to draw on and that's something that we're really conscious of. So that's one of the reasons it was really important for us to, um, to form a, um, an alliance with green groups because they were much better resourced than we were and they could connect us up to um, other people who were in similar situations. 
Yeah, I think the scales are definitely tipped in government and industry's favour for these things. You make a very good point there. Um, what are some of the barriers around this in terms of um, the empowerment of First Nations people? Um, well, firstly, there's the language barrier. Um, when you look at something like a public environment report or an environmental impact assessment um, or a um, submissions process or you go along to any of the... Um, information sessions that um, either government or industry might be running, it's always presented um, in English and often the um, terminology that's used in those meetings um, is highly technical. Mm. It's not lay language and um, it's even um, further um, impacted on because it's, it's in a language that um, a lot of Indigenous people aren't familiar with um, and it's not um, translated or interpreted for us in our own first languages. So we have a real barrier with language, and um, in South Australia, um, we don't have an interpretive service, an, an Aboriginal interpretive service. In the Northern Territory, even though there is an interpretive service, it's probably not been um, able to be accessed for the purposes like this of actually having... Um, a, um, a more equitable interaction with the likes of mining companies because I'm sure that that interpretive service is stretched to the, to the limit already, um, probably by um, functions around um, representing people in court um, and other more pressing matters than um, assisting people to um, engage in the, the process of negotiations with mining companies. Mm. and industries such as the uranium industry. And this is something that industry and government are well aware of. And um, even though we have in place something called corporate social responsibility in Australia, corporate social responsibility is usually um, an after, um, after agreement and after um, uh, a process um, of extraction and, and profit making has already commenced. So corporate social responsibility um, often doesn't take into account what people need in terms of their support around the decision-making processes prior to agreeing or, um, or saying no to um, what companes are asking for mm, and they often make it difficult um, to say yeah, no. corporate yeah corporate social responsibility is primarily around um, supporting um, and facilitating a um, contractual agreement um, making process for um, for companies and then um, managing the resources that come out of the um, whatever the venture is that's creating money to be able to um, add to the um, economic assimilation of, um, of Indigenous people. So that's the other tension we face is knowing that um, economic assimilation is at the forefront of all of these negotiations. Mm. We know that from the start, from past experience, and we know that through um, the intellectual debates that um, we've engaged in over the years around environmental, cultural, social impacts, that the, the process is really around um, economic assimilation rather than any other element of um, assessing whether or not something's negative or positive for the community. Um, in the article, you mentioned that laws that are ostensibly designed to provide rights and protections to Aboriginal people are repeatedly curtailed or overridden to facilitate nuclear projects, so in particular yeah. radioactive waste repositories and uranium mines. Can you give us a bit of detail about that? Yes. Um, yeah, um, at an international level... Um, 
the um, the the legislation and the practices that are in place that constitute world's best practice around um, the protection of water um, are not put in place when it comes to in situ leach mining in Australia. Um, processes that have been outlawed um, in countries all across the world, like um, pumping um, contaminated waste back into underground water tables after the extraction of uh, uranium ore has taken place, mm. um, is allowed in Australia. I can and yet, Australia, and yet, the Australian government and the nuclear industry still claim they're um, they're engaged in world's best practice. So. Um, I don't know how they can classify that as world's best practice when it's outlawed everywhere else across the world. The other area that um, comes to mind too um, is around um, what's in the, the legislation um, for native title and Aboriginal heritage. Um, these processes are, um, are, um, are supposedly designed, the legislation is there to put in place a, um, a process for people to be able to um, have their voices heard and to make their claims and um, to to feel like that there's um, there's actually some process there where um, indigenous rights to sovereignty um, are able to be recognised. But every step of the way, there's always a countermeasure that prevents that, such as um, the minister um, having the final decision over um, whether or not damage and destruction of a site can occur. So that's what happens under the um, Aboriginal Heritage legislation where the minister has the final say and um, it doesn't matter what we say as a community of um, traditional owners, as sovereign peoples, um, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs has the final say over whether or not a site can be damaged or destroyed. As opposed to the TOs. Mm. That's terrible. Uh, what role does Native Title have in contributing to all of these problems? Well, Native Title offers the um, the right to negotiate. Um, so it provides um, an opportunity for um, uh, for the people who um, are nominated representatives under the Native Title framework, and often these are the named applicants um, who've successfully lodged a claim um, so it can either be a registered claim, so a very early stages um, native title claim, um, or it can be people that um, have actually um, fought and won for consent determination. But as soon as you register a claim, you have the right to negotiate. But that right to negotiate um, with a, um, a mining company only extends to the right to negotiate for compensation of loss. It does not offer you the right to say no. You can't it doesn't offer say a no veto. to having that loss. Yeah, that's right. Because um, the minute you say um, no, we won't support you, or no, we don't want to negotiate, um, then the the company has the right to take out a um, a legal action through the ERD court, the Environmental Resources and Development Court. And what that process done is what that process does is effectively um, exclude. Um, your interests and your voice then from um, having any further discussion. So you're getting but, gagged. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're taken completely out of the process. And under native title, what that essentially means is you forfeit your rights then to claim any type of um, monetary or other form of compensation. 
So if you don't negotiate, engage in their process, their way, yeah. you don't have a right to say no and you don't have a right to be compensated for any damage that's done to country or culture. That's right. So well, it's like waving fair. a big stick. It's, it's like waving a big stick at people and saying you either um, negotiate for compensation of loss or you're out. Wow, that's outrageous. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're speaking with Utnamantna woman and lecturer in Aboriginal Studies, Dr Gillian Marsh, about the systemic and legislative barriers that prevent traditional owners from being able to protect their country from the impacts of the nuclear industry. Obviously, there's going to be some significant impacts on Aboriginal heritage and culture this way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um... The impacts that people feel are um, are really far-reaching, and often they don't get captured in the um, in the process of negotiation. They don't get captured in the impact assessment process, and um, the only way that they do get captured is when you look at the statistics for Aboriginal people's health and how um, across Australia Aboriginal people are still dying at a far earlier age than um, non-Indigenous people and it's only now through um, uh, health-based research that um, that there's a recognition that's starting to emerge that um, the, um, the impacts um, of health um, are directly attached to culture and um, loss of rights and impact through colonisation. So the social determinants of health is something that's still not properly factored into the impact assessment process and um, at a guess I'd say it's never going to be properly factored into there um, because once the evidence um, is out there that suggests that um, that um, even entering into these long drawn out negotiations um, impacts on the longevity of a population of people will again that opens the floodgates for, um, for compensation. Mm. Um, so um, I think one of the things that people um, often say at the community level is that um, the knowledge that we have um, about our country um, is much older and it's much more um, deep and it's much more connected to the country because we've been here for so much longer. So we've been in this country for um, thousands of years and hundreds and hundreds of generations of people. and. Um, we've managed to live in this country with a much lighter footprint than what we've seen in the last 200 years. Yeah. And this is because of our, um, our intimate knowledge and our customary practices that have respected that knowledge of what we've learnt about how to, um, how to live in a more sustainable manner um, in this country. Um, but often that knowledge um, and those customary practices are not validated um, through Western science, which is the basis of um, impact assessment um, and any um, expert um, reports that are made that feed into um, into impact assessment um, processes, um, there's always a, um, a primary focus on Western science and Indigenous knowledges and values are either right at the bottom of the heap or they're completely excluded from the process. Mm. On that, can you explain Yurimuda, which is um, mentioned in your article, and how it's denied by government and how, if it wasn't denied, it could contribute to decolonisation and respectful and meaningful engagement with First Nations peoples in Australia? 
Yes, yeah. Yeah, Yorimura is for us a um, a way of knowing the country and recording our knowledge and passing it on to people. So um, it's not just a body of knowledge that um, is um, is central to us understanding how the land the land was created and what our role is in looking after the land. It's also a set of customary practices um, that we follow and um, values that go with those practices. Um, so often um, the um, the murder that we that we have from our culture is unwritten. Um, it's not classed as scientific. Um, and it's part of the reason why um, Indigenous people really struggle to have a voice. So, for example, the, um, the storylines and the song lines that run through our country that relate to um, the uh, Yorlu, the Kingfisher Man, and how, um, how Yorlu travelled um, as a leader of ceremony and lit fires on his way down to a, um, an ancient um, meeting ground known as Wilpena Pound, when he travelled, um, he was signalling his progress um, heading south by lighting fires. And um, because um, this story goes back to the time when there was an ancient forest through the um, area um, where the coal mine is now and um, where the coal deposits are. Yeah. And so when he was travelling down, um, he was lighting these fires and, and burning the forest. And our belief is that's what the coal represents now. And um, that story was fundamental to upholding um, the law of our people and the, um, the governance of our people, the governance structure. And it was also uh, very central to, um, uh, to understanding how um, our community um, would stay together and um, facilitate a, um, a way of living that um, predates um, occupation by um, by Westerners and by mining companies, and when when these types of um, stories and knowledges are um, are shared with the likes of government and mining company, they're treated as myths, as fairy tales, um, as not real because they don't comply with um, Western science, and um, they don't um, they don't meet the um, the aspirations of mining companies or government to um, are looking to make a profit out of extraction of a substance such as coal. Um, so there's a real um, disjoint between um, our body of knowledge and our way of living and that of a commercial entity like a mining company and a, um, a modern Australian Westminster government that's based on um, colonial uh, practices. Mm. Do you have any ideas for a better approach? I know I would like to see um, what Jay Weatherall, former South Australian Premier, wrote to um, Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, saying that there should be an Aboriginal right of veto over developments like a waste, radioactive waste dump on land. Do you have any ideas for better approaches, for example, like that, to make land management and choice better and less badly impactful on people? Well, given that the right to veto is something that was talked about um, when ma when uh, land rights legislation was first being developed, and um, it was very quickly axed from the process, <laughs> um, I can't see that um, native title is ever going to introduce 
that idea, even mm. as a discussion point, to be honest, because I think um, that would be very quickly squashed by both government and industry mm, um, because right, they would never want to um, enable a process where um, traditional owners actually have the opportunity to exercise their sovereign rights. Mm. No, um, native title is not a process around recognition of sovereignty. It's about um, providing a process for negotiating compensation of loss due to um, exploration or mining or other types of commercial ventures that damage or destroy your country. Mm. It doesn't give you sovereign recognition. Yeah, so, so that would be I something. Can't, I can't see that. Um, I can't see that there's ever going to be a process introduced where um, you have the right to veto. And even under the um, uh, land rights legislation in the Northern Territory, where they do have the right to veto, it's only in place for a period of five years. Wow. So even then, the, um, the TOs who can spend a decade campaigning under the land rights legislation. Um, putting their heart and soul into a campaign that might last eight or ten years long um, under native uh, under the um, land rights legislation, it only gives them a five year period where that veto can hold up after that period, the um, industry or the company can come back and reopen negotiations all over again. Wow, so once you've won it's only temporary. Yeah, that's right. So I think the other types of measures, though, that could be put in place are definitely um, better um, better resources for um, for communities, for local people, for traditional owners, so that um, that they do actually have um, a better opportunity to um, to reach a point where they can actually enter into a process based on free, prior, and informed consent. Mm-hmm. Because the idea um, of um, entering into a um, negotiations process without having um, full knowledge and without being able to access um, a range of different views on things um, does not give you um, informed consent. And that's a basic human right. And under um, international law, that's what um, Indigenous people and all people are entitled to. So um, when we talk about a, um, a process of engagement with the um, uh, either with the impact assessment procedure or when negotiating directly with mining companies, it should be based on genuine free prior and informed consent. So that means um, putting in place the resources, and this should be funded by government and by industry. It shouldn't have to be funded um, by Indigenous people. Um, or by um, green groups. If mining companies and um, government are serious about wanting to off- offer um, a process of, of proper engagement with Indigenous people, it should be based on a process that's properly funded um, and properly supported and um, where Indigenous people feel like they actually have their voices being heard and not being curtailed by, by what the industry wants. Exactly. Yeah, there's just one more thing I'd like to add that Mm -hmm. I think would be really important, um, again, as another way forward. And I think that involves um, what other nations have done, what other colonised countries have done around um, establishing a truth commissions process in their nation. 
um, Canada have um, put in place a um, series of truth commissions um, so that um, uh, Indigenous peoples in, uh, across Canada can actually have their voices heard about the way that their nation has been colonised, about the impacts that this has had on their lives um, and their, their livelihoods. And I think here in Australia, that would certainly be a big help um, in actually decolonising our entire psyche as a nation mm. and um, moving beyond a, um, a colonial framework. Because I think um, what we're seeing in the, um, in the mining industry um, is something that's happening right across society. It's a societal problem where we haven't actually decolonised as a society. We haven't come to terms with the truth about how um, our countries were formed, how federation was formed, and how the invading populations that were coming into our country um, didn't see us as human beings, didn't feel it was necessary to, um, uh, to enter into any sort of treaty negotiations, um, and our sovereignty has never been recognised. But the thing to remember is it's also never been ceded. Right. So I think th these types of um, truths need to come out um, and they, they need to be widespread so that um, all Australians can have an opportunity to actually participate in the process where we really come to terms with the reality of how this country was actually formed and how um, colonialism and racism is still a, um, a fundamental underpinning of so many of the processes that we enter into, including um, negotiations between um, people around land use and, and tensions that, um, that arise because we haven't actually decolonised. Yeah, which, yeah, you're right, underpins all the problems that we have today. Yes, yeah. Yep. So the language that we use, the processes that are put in place, the time frames, um, the, uh, the emphasis on upholding um, white Western privilege, um, not valuing Indigenous um, perspectives and sovereignties. Um, these are all the types of issues that cut across um, every element of negotiation, whether it's in education or health or land use. Um, we, we see the same problems right across the board. So it's, um, it's a systemic problem that um, really does require a, um, a systemic solution to it. Gillian, thank you so much for joining us on the show and explaining all of that to us. I think it's um, really important that people get their heads around how flawed um, the legislation and mechanisms we have in this country are in terms of... Um, protection of people and country. Um, so it's great that you have taken the time to speak to us and have written that article. We'll put a link up to the article on our website if people want to have a deeper dig into it. Thanks okay. so much for your time, Gillian. All right, very good. Thanks, Mara. Thanks, Gillian. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Thanks so much to Dr Gillian Marsh for talking to us about First Nations rights and colonising practices by the nuclear industry. Gillian has written an article about this with Dr Jim Green. It's been published in the Extractive Industries and Society Journal. We'll put a link to the full article on our Facebook page and website. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at 3cr.org.au slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. 
This radioactive show was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri and Kaurna land for 3CR Melbourne with the support of Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Collective. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues.